Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the uh, book of Second uh, Thessalonians. We are beginning a brand new study this morning, and we'll go verse by verse uh, through this little epistle of Paul's of only three chapters. Uh, some of you may remember last summer, uh, we went verse by verse through the book of First Thessalonians, and thought, so I thought it would be good for us to work through Second Thessalonians before we end the summer this year. Now, let me just uh, first give you a, a little bit of background before we begin to actually delve into the book. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, aided by Silas and Timothy, established the church in Thessalonica during uh, uh, the second of Paul's three missionary journeys. Uh, Thessalonica, the city itself, was the capital of Greek Macedonia. It was a thriving seaport and one of the most populous and prominent cities in the entire Roman Empire. Uh, Due to the city's intense loyalty uh, to Rome, they were granted the unique status of a free city. A free city was exempt from Roman taxation, uh, had the privilege of not having Roman troops stationed within its walls, and enjoyed self-government. But the single most important thing about Thessalonica was its strategic location on the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was the east-west highway that ran completely through the Roman Empire. Paul knew that if Christianity could be established in Thessalonica, uh, Christianity would spread east throughout all Asia Minor, and then it would spread west until it reached Rome itself. The story of the founding of the church is recorded in Acts 17, uh, verses 1 through 10, where we discover that as a result of Paul's preaching of the gospel, there were a small group of Jews that were converted, but a great multitude of Greeks came to know Christ, which included, the Bible tells us, uh, some very uh, influential women that were a part of the upper class there in Thessalonica. But the success of the gospel uh, literally stirred up a hornet's nest as the unbelieving Jews incited a riot, a citywide riot against Paul and these new believers, accusing them of acting contrary to the laws of Caesar in order to follow another king, Jesus. This, of course, was the most serious charge that could have been raised against them, especially in light of Thessalonica's loyalty to Rome and wanting to do nothing to jeopardize their favored standing as a free city. As a result, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were forced to flee under the cover of night uh, by the help of uh, of the new believers there in Thessalonica. Now, Paul, being deeply concerned for the fledgling church, he had to leave behind. He wrote 1 Thessalonians to instruct and encourage them, and then just several months later wrote Second Thessalonians. So please follow in your sermon notes. I hope you picked up a copy this morning, 
as we begin by looking at the purpose of 2 Thessalonians. What was the purpose of Paul writing the book of 2 Thessalonians? And we see there to instruct the Thessalonians on how to respond to three issues that were disturbing the peace of the church. Now, before we look at those three issues, I think it's interesting to note that all three of the issues can be found in seed form in 1 Thessalonians, sort of just simmering under the surface. But apparently, uh, they had quickly begun to pick up momentum and now had become a serious threat uh, to the spiritual health of this church. And each chapter deals with uh, one of these three issues. In chapter 1, as we continue, the issue is persecution. The issue is persecution. Look at verse 4, just to, just to give you sort of a flavor, a feel of things. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So the first chapter is all about this issue of persecution. This church was literally birthed in the fires of persecution. And that persecution had not eased. It had, matter of fact, it had intensified. And apparently they were asking questions about the rationale of their affliction. Why were they having to suffer so much? I mean, does God really care? Is God just? Uh, will deliverance come? Well, when will deliverance come? And so, Paul wrote this first chapter to address that issue of persecution and to encourage them. In chapter 2, the issue is false teaching. The issue is false teaching. And this comes out very, very clearly in the first two verses of chapter 2. Let's read those together. Paul wrote, Now we request you, brethren... With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together in Him. And let me just pause right there. Remember, in 1 Thessalonians, the coming of Christ was a major theme. Matter of fact, there are five chapters in 1 Thessalonians. Every single chapter ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ, as does 2 Thessalonians as well. And then he goes on in verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice, false teachers had apparently circulated a forged document, supposedly written by Paul, indicating that the church had missed the rapture and they were now in the day of the Lord, the time of great tribulation and wrath that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. And as you can imagine, this false teaching brought great confusion and anxiety to the church, especially in light of Paul's previous teaching. So they were just confused. They were just in disarray over this. In the third chapter... The issue is what we can call idlers, uh, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, and you'll see it as we read uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. It says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. 
doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Although Paul does not make a direct connection, it seems at the root of this problem was the belief that they could stop work. They could cease planning for the future in order to wait for the imminent return of Jesus. As a result, this group that took that position became an ever-increasing burden on the rest of the church that was feeding them and supporting them. And this group also then used their free time to what? Begin to meddle into everyone else's business. And as a result, great discord and disharmony and disunity was created. Now, I think it's important for you to see that although the purpose of 2 Thessalonians is to address these three problems, persecution, false teaching, and the idlers, it's interesting that Paul does it in a manner where he turns these negative situations into positive advantages. Uh, Notice as we continue in the notes, in the overview of 2 Thessalonians, how Paul does that, how He uses persecution, how he uses the false teaching, the idlers, to turn the hearts of the church towards Christ and his return. In chapter 1, Paul uses their persecution to provide comfort, comfort from the hope of Christ's return. So he takes the issue of persecution, and he turns their hearts towards the comfort, the hope that they have in the return of Christ. In chapter 2, Paul uses the false teaching to bring correction on the time of Christ's return. One of the greatest passages on the Bible, on the end days. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy when we uh, move into the uh, second chapter, which probably will be in about two weeks. Chapter 3, Paul uses the error of the idlers to give a command in light of Christ's return. He he addresses it in what truly pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. So, look with me now at chapter 1 to discover how, in the midst of persecution and affliction, we can find comfort from the hope of Christ's return. I think it would be good if we read the entire chapter, just to see it in in its full context. So, let's just simply read it right now beginning at verse 1 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 12. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from the God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each of one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief 
to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first way, as we continue in our notes now, the first way we find comfort from the hope of Christ's return is that it provides grace to endure the present. It provides grace to endure our present persecutions and afflictions and trials. And of course, this will be the focus in verses 1 through 4. We need to realize and need to be reminded that persecution, adversity, suffering, sickness, injustice, and wrong are inescapable present realities as we live in a fallen world that has rebelled against God. And nowhere in the Scripture does God say the Christian is immune from any of these elements. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said in Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So as we go through these persecutions, as we go through these afflictions and difficulties, how do we endure them? Well, not by looking for relief from this world, but by looking for relief when Jesus returns. That's the focus on the Scriptures. Our present reproach is dealt with by looking to our future reward. You know, one of the greatest examples of this, and you don't have to turn there. Matter of fact, just so you'll know, uh, as we walk through this message, I'll be sharing a lot of different Scripture references. I would encourage you just to get the reference down in your notes where you can go back and uh, look at these and study them yourselves. But one of the greatest examples of this is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24, 25, and 26. It says, by faith, now listen, it says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So the question would be, what in the world motivated Moses to make such a choice? There he was a prince of Egypt, which was the world empire in that day. And he gave up all of that, all the riches, all the pleasures, for what? Ill treatment. To suffer ill treatment with the people of God. And here's why. He says, because he considered the reproach of Christ 
greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the what? Reward. He was looking to the reward. Now listen, beloved, the Thessalonians advanced and endured in their walk with Christ, not only what? Despite their persecutions and afflictions, but because of them. Their persecutions and afflictions turned their hearts away from the passing pleasures of this world to look and long for the only one that can bring true, lasting joy and happiness. As they cried out, even so, what? Come, Lord Jesus. Look in your notes at the three evidences of God's grace in their lives, which enabled them to endure their present trials as they looked to Christ's return. First, Paul thanked God that their faith is increasing, that their faith is increasing. Look at verse 3 again. Look at verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. Now, let me raise the question. What is biblical faith? When he says your faith is greatly enlarged, what is biblical faith? The easiest way I would know to define it is trusting obedience. There's both of those elements in true biblical faith. They're two sides of the same coin. I trust and I demonstrate that trust by my obedience. And I'm able to obey because I am trusting, I am relying, I am leaning on God. So Paul is commending these believers for their trust and obedience towards God, which has not remained stagnant, but has what? Greatly enlarged. It's continued to increase. The word enlarge is a very fascinating word in the Greek text. It's hooperazano, and it's a compound word which literally means to increase beyond measure or to grow beyond what could be expected. Why does authentic faith always grow? Because what is the object of true faith? God. The object of true faith is Almighty God. Therefore, as I focus on God, as my knowledge of God increases, my understanding and awareness of God increases, so my, does my faith grow. Hebrews eleven six. Many of you are familiar with this verse. And without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. For he who comes to God, notice, must believe that he is... And that he is what? A rewarder of those who seek him. So in other words, the reason the faith of the Thessalonians was enlarging is that as they hit persecution and adversity, they turned from the adversity to put their focus on God. They did not focus on the size of their problem, the size of their adversity, but the size of their God. They did not focus on their inability, but the master's ability. They did not focus on the reproach, the pain, the difficulty, but the reward that it would bring them as they remain faithful to God. See, true faith, true faith always feeds off persecution and affliction because true persecution uh, drives me what to God, which in turn enlarges my faith in Him, which in turn gives me greater assurance of my eternal reward in heaven when He returns, which in turn provides the motivation to remain faithful to God. Let me just give you a couple other great references here. First Peter 1. 
6 and 7. Good cross-references. It says, at present, you may be temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials. This is no accident. See, God's in control. It happens to what? Prove your faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold. And gold, as you know, must be purified by fire. So God uses persecution. He uses affliction not only to authenticate the, the, the truth of our faith, but also to strengthen that faith and to refine that faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your life, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Why? Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. I would like you to turn to 1 Peter 4. I'd like to see one other passage, another great cross-reference here. Take your Bibles, keep them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 12. Let me begin reading at verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Again, he's just emphasizing the inevitable fact that suffering in this life is inescapable. So don't think it's some strange thing. It's part and partial of living on planet earth. But then look at verse 13. What a great verse. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, what's that referring to? His coming, His return, you may rejoice with exaltation. Now, just, you stay right there. But let me just give commentary on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In other words, why in the midst of suffering do we rejoice as we look to the coming of Christ? Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, for momentary light affliction is producing something. What is it producing as we remain faithful to God in the midst of it? It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Remember what it said to Moses again. He turned away from anything that could be seen, that can be touched, that can be felt, and he put his focus on the invisible, that eternal reward that would be his through faith in his God. And so going back to 1 Peter chapter 4, to the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we rejoice. Why? Because at the revelation of His glory, we're going to rejoice with exultation. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed but in that name, let him glorify God. So comfort from the hope 
of Christ's return not only was increasing their faith to endure the present, but notice the second thing. It was also growing their love for one another, growing their love for one another. Paul, thank God that their love is growing, that their love is growing in the latter part of verse 3. Look at that. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? How do we love one another? Even as I have loved you, sacrificially as a servant, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love. An amazing statement. Paul says, when you, when you take, when you sum it all up, my teaching and my writing and my ministering and my encouraging and my discipling, the goal of it all is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul wrote in Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. See, persecution and affliction had driven the Thessalonian believers to God where they not only found God's comfort, but they also developed a greater sensitivity towards one another. The fires of that affliction had, had melted them and molded them into one. You know, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Listen to these great verses. It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give to them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you, are, you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. What an incredible verse. Think of the three truths that are being mentioned there. These are not in your notes, but they're critical. Number one... Who's the source of all comfort? God. So again, you don't look for relief in this life. You don't look for relief from people, although they can be instruments and channels, even as we see here. But ultimately, you look what? To God to be the source of comfort in your life. And then the second truth we see here, I must be a recipient of God's comfort in my adversity. Which means, in a very practical way, when I'm going through a difficult time, I have to make a deliberate, intentional source to turn my focus away from the pain and the difficulty and put my focus toward God. Realizing that He's sovereign, that He's in control, that He will not allow anything to touch my life that He can't use for my good in His greater glory. And then the third truth we see here is God comforts me for one reason. What? To comfort others. 
That's how he equips me to be a minister. As he comforts me, I'm able to share that same comfort with others. Another way of saying that is God desires to take every hurt you have ever experienced, every wound, every pain, every suffering, and he wants to transform that into an open door to minister to others. See, that's the calling of a believer. That's why in in Peter he says, we have been called to suffer as Christ suffered, to follow in his steps. See, it was through Christ's sufferings that we are healed. And this passage is clearly saying, God uh, will allow a believer to go through hurt and pain because he loves a lost world. And he loves his family. And as he's going to allow me to go through that, as I experience God's grace, then I develop a tenderness towards others, a sensitive, sensitivity towards others, an ability to come along someone's side and say, I understand what you're going through, and I'm going to be here for you. Well, you don't have to necessarily give a lecture. You're just there for them, to love them and to encourage them and to walk that path with them. Edith Schaefer, I love this quote from her book, The Affliction. She wrote, no one can really comfort anyone else unless there has been a measure of the same kind of affliction or some kind of suffering which is brought in understanding and which we have ourselves experienced the Lord's comfort. See, it's a poor comforter that's never been comforted himself. Amen? See, comfort from the hope of Christ's return, it it increased their faith to endure their present trials. It grew their love for one another, and it also gave them, here's a third thing there in your notes, a persevering hope. In verse 4, Paul thanked God that their hope is persevering. And notice, I purposely use the language, their, their, their faith is enlarging, their love is growing, their hope is persevering. In this passage, Paul uses present tense verbs. That it's a continual process. It's not like they had arrived, but they weren't where they had started. Their faith had grown, their love had grown, their hope had grown. And that should be the expectation in the life of every believer as we look to God and as He, as he matures us. Look at verse 4. It says, Therefore... We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And let me give you a great cross-reference. And you just get this down in your notes. I'll read it for you. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul wrote, and not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. Why would any fool rejoice in tribulation? He says, knowing this, this is why knowing that tribulation accomplishes something. It brings perseverance in my life, just as we've already seen. How their persecution and their uh, afflictions drove them to God to find his comfort, to give them the grace to endure their present trials. So he's knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, but we don't stop there. What does perseverance do? And perseverance brings proven character. See, in the fires of that adversity, 
God refines the metal of our lives, the character of our lives. But he doesn't stop there, and he says proven character produces something, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, the word perseverance in both of these passages, First Thessalonians, I mean, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, and here in Romans 5, the word perseverance is hupopone in the Greek text. The word refers, beautiful word, it refers to a patient and courageous enduring of trouble. A patient and courageous enduring of trouble. The word literally means sustaining hope under difficulty. That's what the word literally means. Sustaining hope, a bright expectation, even under difficulty. It is not, in other words, it's not a grim waiting, but it is a joyful hope and expectation. And what is the basis of that patience? What is the basis of that courage, of that joy, of that hope, even in the midst of the greatest of difficulties? The return of Jesus Christ. Then he will bring relief to his children, and he will bring retribution to our adversaries. In other words, there will be a payday someday. See, again, we have to put our expectations not in this life. We're not always going to get justice here. We're not always going to see every wrong righted here. But folks, there's a day coming when we will know relief. And that's when Jesus returns. And that's where we put our hope. And as I put my hope in that future reality, it gives me grace today to maintain my faith in God, to endure these present trials, to grow in my love for you, and to see my faith enlarged. As I close, let me just illustrate it this way. The brave men and women of the French underground during World War II were well aware of their limitations as they challenged uh, their Nazi conquerors. They knew that alone they could never overthrow their oppressors, but they had hope. They had hope. What was the basis of that hope? It was a huge invasion force that they knew was gathering on the other side of the English Channel. They were convinced, absolutely convinced, that in an hour that none of them knew an invasion force would sweep onto the shores of France and join up with their ragtag army and carry them to victory. They believed that when that great day came, all that they had worked for, all that they had suffered for, all that they had bled for would be given new and wonderful significance. They were confident in that hour that they would know that their labor had not been in vain. And listen, beloved, in like manner, we are an underground movement for God. We struggle against an awesome enemy, and sometimes it seems like the odds are insurmountable. But in our efforts to advance God's kingdom, we labor and fight with hope. 
And what is that hope? There is an invasion force gathering on the other side. And in an hour not known to man, our heavenly king will re-enter human history and the final victory will be his. And we will be on the winning side, his followers. This is the hope that enables us to persevere today. This is the hope that brings comfort and provides grace to endure present persecution and affliction. Lift up your eyes, church. Your redemption draweth nigh. And that redemption is our Redeemer, our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, as we enter a time of invitation, did you notice in verse 4, and I think this is a just good word of uh, exhortation, good word of application. He, Paul said, we speak proudly of you among the churches. We speak proudly of you. In other words, it, it raises the question, from God's perspective, what kind of church is he proud of? When our Heavenly Father looks down at His children, when He looks down at the many expressions of His family, the local bodies of Christ, what makes Him proud? What brings Him joy? And you clearly see it here. What is it? An increasing faith, a growing love for one another, and a persevering hope. And again, I believe as we've seen, the key to all of that, the key to our faith increasing, the key to our love growing, the key to our a persevering hope is turning away from these temporary adversities and trials and placing our focus on God. Again, as I said earlier, realizing that there's no problem so great that He can't deal with. Amen? So I don't focus again on the size of the adversity, but the size of my God. Again, not on my, my inability, but His ability. Not on the reproach of the situation, but my reward, my future reward. And as I focus on Him, even in the midst of it, it doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't remove the pain. But it gives the grace to continue to go forward, to continue to believe, to continue to trust, and to honor God and bring glory to Him. That's, we sang it about it earlier, that's how you let your light shine for Him. That's how you let your light shine. 2 Corinthians 4 says what? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. We are perplexed by life's trials. We don't understand the reason why. But he says not to the point of despair where we would give up hope and jump ship. Yes, we may be persecuted, but we're not forsaken because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And yes, we may often be knocked down in life's contest, but he says, you're never knocked out because God is always there as the source of all comfort to pick us up, to encourage us, and when need be, to lift us and carry us himself as we continue to advance. And that's why that same passage says we have this treasure in what? These frail clay pots that 
as the affliction comes, the persecution comes, the perplexity comes, it breaks us because we're frail. We get hurt. We weep. We're in agony. And God says, but don't lose sight of the fact that the reason I allow that is those cracks releases Jesus so that others can see him in and through you. Father, thank you for the truth that we've looked at today as we've looked at this issue of persecution and affliction and how even in the midst of persecution and affliction you give us the grace to endure as we look to the future, our future reward, as we look to the return of our Savior who will bring final relief who will finally dry up every tear And then also bring retribution to those who were our adversaries that attacked you, your ways, and your children. So, Father, my prayer is that this morning you would instill hope. You would give comfort. You would give grace. Lord, I I know this church family, and I could just, just go right down pointing out people right now in this sanctuary that I know are hurting, overwhelmed with adversity and affliction. Lord, let them see that they're not without hope. But Lord, help them see that relief won't come necessarily living in this world, but as we look to the next. And so, Lord, may we come this morning to renew our surrender to you, to realize that we are channels through which you want your light to shine. And so, Father, may we, as we read in James, not resent our trials and view them as intruders, trying to run from them and even being mad at you. But, Lord, may we welcome them into our lives, welcome them, thanking you, knowing that you're going to use that to build perseverance and in that perseverance proven character where our faith love and hope grows and in that proven character you're going to give a hope that will not disappoint and we'll know your love that's been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us for it's in Christ's name we pray amen